physics world. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has this morning decided to award the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics in equal share to Alain Aspin, Université Paris-Saclay, and École Polytechnique Palaiso, France. John F. Clauser, J. F. Clauser and Associates, Walnut Creek, California, USA, and to Anton Seilinger, University of Vienna, Austria. They received the prize for experiments with entangled photons, establishing the violation of Bell inequalities and pioneering quantum information science. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and that was Hans Ellegren, the Secretary General of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, announcing this year's winners of the Nobel Prize in Physics. And in this episode, we'll be exploring how the science that won that Nobel Prize is being applied in real-world technologies today. We'll hear from Oscar Kennedy, a quantum engineer at Oxford Quantum Circuits. But first, here's Max Seek, whose company AEGIQ, that's A-E-G-I-Q, received the Business Startup Award from the IOP in 2021 for the development of a breakthrough quantum photonics platform which enabled new applications in quantum communications, computing and imaging using high-performance sources of indistinguishable single photons. EJEC is a quantum technology company. Um, so we are focused on accelerating global adoption of quantum tech with the most scalable uh, technologies um, for mass market applications. And we use photonics for that. Uh, as, and as the main component, and uh, our first product is already in the market. Uh, it's a source, true, true source of uh, quantum light, or single photos. And there's more exciting stuff on the way. We'll return to the tech very soon. But first, just what did those scientists do to win the Nobel Prize? The, they proved uh, the Bell inequalities, as they're called. And so I'm sure some of the listeners know what it is, but um, for those who don't, um, uh, North Irish physicist John Bell, he was very concerned about like, quantum uh, and like, is it real? Uh, is quantum mechanics correct? And so he designed a set of um, theoretical uh, equations, well, actually, they're inequalities, um, that if they were correct, if they held uh, to test, that would mean that quantum mechanics isn't correct. And if they're violated, uh, that means that quantum mechanics is correct and we do not have something called hidden variables. Uh, but basically, the classical description uh, doesn't hold uh, on that level. So, so John Cluster, uh, Alan Aspect, and Anton uh, Zillinger, so they managed to conduct a series of experiments that uh, with ever-increasing accuracy and thoroughness proved that uh, that is indeed the case and they could violate that inequalities. So quantum works, bottom line. Yeah. And you and your company employ it. So the first thing we put there is a, is a generator of identical, indistinguishable uh, single photons. 
that are generated on demand. So you have a very deterministic output. And that is a derivative or part of building entangled states. So in the same way, uh, you can build entangled pairs of photons. And this is exactly the, the opportunity that uh, opens up because all of the quantum technology, so quantum computing, quantum networking and communication is based on the fact that entanglement exists and it's real. And when we say quantum entanglement, it's, it's a little bit different to what happens with your shoelaces or the cables that you have on your desk. Um, it means that you can, I mean, the information is still uh, transferred with the speed of light, but nevertheless, uh, you can uh, know what, uh, the impact on one or the other particle without directly measuring the, uh, the first one, for example. And that, that gives that opportunity for, uh, you know, new types and new ways to send information across. Something called, say, quantum teleportation is just one example. Um, and it means that you can send information from A to B without ever actually transferring it from A to B. Go on. <laughs> That's the beauty. I mean, then we get into the uh, bit where I need to get pen and paper out. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, to, to literally do the maths, right? Yeah, to show it. I, I think uh, uh, when you try to describe quantum mechanics verbally, uh, it's uh, the, the one thing uh, that is more challenging than actually doing quantum mechanics is describing it verbally. The concepts behind quantum mechanics are quite a bit different from the uh, mechanistic or the sensory world that we're used to. And um, I think having a word mechanics in there is, uh, is a funny one because it's definitely not mechanics, um, uh, but it is mechanics. So quite often when we try to understand new concepts, new ideas, uh, we try to have some, some relation to like our, our own perception, our sensory um, experiences that we had before. And with quantum, it's not possible. Like, uh, you know, you just came up with a, a very imaginary uh, ways to describe na uh, you know, nature. You give it names and you hear things like wave functions, spin, you know, all these things. And for some people, it might be, oh, yeah, that's a wave. Or, oh, yeah, that's really spinning like this. And there is a way to make that analogy, but actually it doesn't. It's just a way to name a property, and you could have called it A, B, C, D, but uh, then you will forget what it is. Uh, it's like, you know, flavors in elementary particles. I mean, they don't taste <laughs> anything. You can't taste them. It, it's impossible. But nevertheless, they are there. Um, so it's a way to, like, bring some structure to that uh, zoo of different properties that are otherwise uh, unrelated to, uh, to anything. Uh, and this is saying macro world. So basically a place where you have too many molecules and atoms together, which uh, are us. Uh, this world behaves very differently uh, if, you, if you go down to single, uh, single level. So our, all our sensory uh, experiences are based on uh, group effects of everything. So it's a large numbers averaged out like, for example, temperature is probably the simplest analogy here. 
we just know that temperature is the uh, is the amount of energy there is in so kinetic energy in the molecules around us. Uh, but we say it's temperature in degrees, like you know, and it's not really uh, something that exists on on that level. There is no such thing. Uh, you can you can make it you can translate it in some ways to uh, say okay this is the temperature a Latin of a lattice or, or something but actually it's just the energy and the and the, uh, the back of it um, so you have to accept that level of abstraction and you know uh, when you're playing a computer game and there are dragons and all the fairies and all that stuff and they don't you don't need them every day but you accept that, or if you believe in, you know, like back in the day we had the, uh, you know, the pantheon of gods, for example, like Greek mythology is an example. Nobody have ever seen them; they still exist. Though. So there's a way for you to believe in things um, and just accept it as a, as an imaginary concept, and it works. I mean, that, that's difficult. And then the, then Bell came along, then the others came along, and said, "Well, you know, give it a go." And it works. Right. So that's the difference, right? That there's, there isn't maths that proves the gods, and there isn't maths that proves the fairies and the dragons. Yeah, and that's the difference between our modern society and uh, societies back in the day. Um, and, you know, we have to develop and believe in science and scientific method. And I think that's the fundamental difference that allowed the society to have an incredible development in the last two centuries compared to everything that happened before. Uh, and that's the, uh, the main thing. Um, and so you use that scientific method uh, quite rigorously for testing quantum mechanics. But do, so does it um, bother you when the word quantum is used in marketing speak or to make things sound more exotic? No, uh, I think it's fine. It, it leads to some confusion sometimes, uh, what it is. Um, probably not everybody's going to agree with me on that uh, approach, uh, but I think generally quantum means something very progressive right now, or people try to use it to bring in that progressive, you know, cutting edge uh, something. Um, and that's for a good reason. When did you sort of think, oh, this is, this is the field for me, I'm going to get into this? When I was doing my undergrad, um, I just chose quantum physics. Uh, it was in the early 2000s. Uh, so it was still, you know, just, just at the time when, uh, you know, Alan Aspect and uh, the final experiments were just happening there. And... Uh, uh, that, that was the first time you would start hearing about, uh, oh, the bell inequality has been violated. Um, and then you had to figure out what's happened uh, on that front. And we just knew that quantum, I mean, it was just generic feeling. Uh, that quantum is, a, is an exciting, it's a new area, even though, you know, there's already textbook, but at the same time, it didn't feel like it's, uh, it's established. Uh, uh, and so that, that's how I started. And then I did a PhD, then I did a research fellowship uh, in and around this field. And then we observed how um, so quantum science transformed into quantum technologies and into uh, sector, uh, emerging sector in our economy. So UK was uh, the first country in the world 
to put together a um, quantum technology program. Um, and you know, one of the masterminds behind it is uh, Sir Peter Knight. Um, and that started, that was signed off 2013, started in 2014. Uh, we just saw how you know, explosive development it was. Uh, to give you a comparison, so the very first quantum UK quantum technology showcase, uh, I don't know exact number, but I was there. It was 2014, and there were probably 40, 50 people, something like that. Uh, this year's uh, quantum technology showcase, uh, the show sold out a uh, month and a half before at the beginning. And it hit the limits of the uh, Queen Elizabeth II, the exhibition center. What kind of technologies were we seeing? So the quantum tech has got like three key pillars and in terms of applications. So one is quantum computing and probably the one that's most talked about. Uh, the second uh, is quantum communications and the third is quantum sensing, metrology, imaging. I mean, they, they, they should go in no particular order. I just named that like that. Um, but in terms of importance, uh, they are, I mean, uh, you cannot derive one that is more important than the other. Uh, that's, that's impossible. But I think you should really compare the quantum technology to how digital came to, to us. So quantum is there to uh, be the next technological suite, if you want, the set of technologies that's going to come after digital. So, you know, back in the day when people first rolled out transistors and, you know, von Neumann logic, did they think we're going to be recording this podcast on a digital device? Probably not. And same applies to, uh, to quantum. I think we're at this uh, really, really exciting stage where it's, it's full of opportunity um, and you can, it's going to grow uh, incredible, and we'll see some incredible applications coming out of that. So we'll see uh, incredible applications, right? But will we see day-to-day -day applications? Of course. Uh, do you use digital day-to-day -day now? Yeah. So you will do quantum. How is quantum going to improve what we're doing on the day-to-day? -day? Well, it's going to be faster, better computing, better, more sensitive sensors, better, more secure communication. Um, it's that, that's what it's going to be. So you're going to be able to solve the problems uh, computationally that were impossible with digital completely. Um, that includes anything from drug simulation, discovery to the large data uh, processing and you know big data. Uh, Machine learning and quantum computing and neural networks are uh, entangled uh, triplets. You know, it's just that quantum is something that has been unknown and sitting in the dark uh, for a really long time. And then, you know, quantum communications is going to take us into a different domain in terms of how we uh, send data across, how we share data. You know, when digital came over, you stopped writing as many letters by your hand, right? And that's completely changed how we share information. Uh, likewise, quantum is going to change uh, the way we share information as well. Uh, it's going to be everywhere. I think it's not, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a you know 100% quantum smartphone in your pocket. Uh, it would have 
elements of everything in it and it's going to touch in every aspect of life maybe you won't know that it does it uh, but it would we'll come back to max later in the podcast but here's oscar kennedy i'm a quantum engineer i work at oxford quantum circuits and we're a startup from the university of oxford but actually based in reading and we're building quantum computers um, we're trying to build them so that we can prov- put them on the internet and provide access to them to the world to solve some really interesting problems. What's a quantum engineer? There's probably a lot of things that are a quantum engineer. Specifically in our company, the quantum engineers are the people who are doing measurements of our quantum systems and building them, I suppose. So a little bit of background. We are a company that builds superconducting quantum computers. Um, what that means is that we have a chip, much like a kind of like a microelectronics chip, but instead of being made of silicon, we have a, a chip that's got superconductors on it. And we design these chips to realize superconducting qubits. Uh, superconducting qubits. I realize I'm going to have to go down the hill of jargon here. Uh, a superconducting qubit is another thing that we've engineered. So it's basically a system which has two different energy, uh, two different states. So it can be up or down. You can think of it as. And our quantum computer uses the fact that it can be in these two different states, but it can also be in a quantum superposition of these two states at the same time. So you can't just take a chip and say, all right, cool, I've made it. So it's a quantum computer. There's a lot of stuff that goes around that. So in order for our chip to operate in the quantum regime, it has to be at really low temperatures. Uh, so we put it in a cryostat, which will reach kind of 10 millikelvin. So that's uh, a hundredth of a degree above absolute zero. So that's really cold. Um, and these are incredibly impressive pieces of kit. They're beautiful. Um, one of my fun facts about them is so repeated without sourcing but uh if you think of like extreme environments in the universe you've got the highest temperature the highest pressure the lowest temperature the lowest pressure most of these extreme environments are created by the universe and nature so like the the inside of a sun is going to be hotter and higher pressure than anything we can dream of the coldest place in the universe that we know of are things that humans have created and that's the only like human engineered extreme Unless, of course, I'm talking rubbish because I don't have any source for that. But I think that's true. Um, So we put them inside these cryostats. We cool them down to really low temperatures. And we have to do some clever... We're going to interact with these by sending pulses of microwaves down. We use these pulses of microwaves to control the state of our qubit, but also to read out the state of our qubit. Um, And so we've got to play this difficult game where we've got to take our delicate quantum chip and isolate it from the environment and the world so that it stays you know lovely in quantum but also connect it just enough so that we can also send all these control signals that, down so that we can actually do intentional computation and so a quantum engineer which was your original question is someone who sort of bridges this gap between our superconducting chip and the outside world we build uh, build the microwave environments and send the microwave pulses down interpret the data we're getting out and use this data to understand what's happening in our chip so that we can optimize that for the future. The superconducting chip, the quantum chip, how do you make that in the first place? So there's a lot of quite well-established microfabrication techniques. So this is not really specifically the realms of quantum. This is more the realms of just microfabrication. Uh, So you can deposit thin, you, you take a planar substrate, which will be a 
crystalline substrate, polished very flat, and you can buy these off the shelf. Um, you'll clean it up so that it's not got gunk all over it, and then you'll deposit a superconducting film, um, and you can deposit superconducting films through lots of different techniques. You can typically will involve a vacuum chamber where you either evaporate a metal or you do something called sputtering, where sputtering is basically you just take a gas and you bombard a metallic target to knock off bits of it, which will go and eventually sit on your substrate. You've now got a, a film and you can do lithography. And lithography is sort of like old school photography, um, where you're using uh, chemicals which are sensitive to types of radiation, um, shining radiation on those chemicals and then putting them in a developer. And that developer chemical will selectively process the bit of the chemical that's seen this radiation and leave the stuff that hasn't seen the radiation untouched. Um, and this allows you to, and so you can use different uh, fabrication techniques to build up layers of resist um, and pattern your film that you've deposited. We could spend maybe a few hours doing a rundown of techniques, but the, the basic idea is it's a bit like photography, but it obviously is a much finer feature process, um, more precise, carefully calibrated. Um, and this allows you to build up a device layer by layer. It's an awfully long way from cryo chambers and making sure that the superconducting chip is exactly the right temperature to quantum computers being part of our everyday. You're absolutely right. Um, so uh, so quantum circuits, we're a full hardware stack company. So we're interested in basically doing everything from making the chip, installing it in a cryostat, putting microwave lines down the cryostat, connecting that up to classical computers and control systems, which will send the right microwave pulses down, and then building a software infrastructure that will put this on the cloud so that an end user can log in and say, I want to do this computation and like compile that computation and send it into our chip. So there's a, but there's lots of different stages there which span huge different technical remits. Um, yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but how, I mean, is it a thing that's happening? Um, so we have a quantum computer which is currently online um, based on the time. So I think it's on from 10 till 4 GMT or UK time. And you can log on to AWS Bracket. So it's an Amazon quantum service, and that will allow you to send compute directly to our quantum chip, which is in our lab downstairs. Um, our quantum computer is called Lucy. And so we name all of our different quantum computing generations after famous pioneering female scientists. And this one is named after Lucy Mensing. Um, so you can currently access it. The fact that you can access it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a quantum computer that's going to give you a quantum advantage and a speed up over a data center. That's a really different thing. And conclusive demonstration of this has yet to be done in the community, but it's that's basically what we're all working towards. We're working towards a, a quantum computer which does all like we, we know is a doing computations and we know is quantum mechanical, we can show all these things, but is also then able to offer you a meaningful speed up in real world algorithms or applications because of its quantumness. And that's sort of the holy grail of the field. Okay. So that's the holy grail of the field. Quicker processing. It's tricky. So every time you say quicker, quantum people who are really deep in the quantum are going to sort of wince and go, because it's not exactly quicker. Um, it might be that your algorithm solves more quickly because quantum computers are very powerful, but the, Specific compute steps are not necessarily super fast. This maybe gets a bit nitty gritty in detailing, but rather than faster, 
I think I prefer personally to think of more powerful and certain applications. So there are some things where the fact that you're, when you get down to your low level processor, it's operating under the laws of quantum physics rather than classical physics. Um, there are some algorithms where that fact offers you a meaningful speed up for real world algorithms. And that's really well proved out for a few algorithms. Um, Peter Shaw's factoring algorithm is one of the well-known ones where it's factoring prime numbers, which has huge value internationally for um, breaking certain types of encryption. That's really rigorously fleshed out. Um, but there's lots of kind of ideas around ways that it could be used for things like drug discovery and these are also becoming more fleshed out and more real is that where we'll see quantum computers or are they going to be as everywhere as mobile phones and laptops and things Um, i think in the medium term is quantum computers will be used for high value computes that are hard to do i'm a nuts and bolts scientist right so this is my interpretation rather than my like in the field yeah um, so I am much more hardware focused, but I think that it will probably be seen in a few classes of problems. Some of the classes of problem are going to be things like optimization problems, which you see, you know, across industries, it spans everything, whether you're Amazon wanting to know how to send out all your trucks efficiently, or I don't know, there's countless examples of optimizations, which have huge value. Um, other things are problems which have intrinsic quantum mechanical parts to them. So, you know, I want to discover a new drug or synthesize a molecule and all of these molecules are made up of atoms which obey the rules of quantum mechanics and it turns out that simulating quantum mechanics on a classical processor is really expensive especially when you throw in 100 molecules that are all interacting and have many degrees of freedom it's just impossible to simulate something like caffeine which is a you know a, a simple molecule you can't do it exactly on a classical computer um, so there's lots of ideas that if you can take the quantum mechanics that's hard to simulate and literally just put it physically into your chip, you might have a huge advantage in terms of your compute. Um, so that's one of the another big class of algorithm, which might be drug discovery, it might be material science, um, and there's lots of interesting stuff that will hopefully happen there. That goal of creating quantum computers that outperform classical computers at specific tasks has been discussed regularly on Physics World in the past few years. Recently, the magazine published an interview with IBM's Jay Gambetta, who said that from 2025, his company is planning to develop modular processes with 100,000 or more qubits. These devices would achieve a so-called general quantum advantage. They consistently outperform classical computers and conduct complex computations beyond the means of classical devices. You can find that interview on the Physics World website. But let's get back to my conversation with Oscar Kennedy. How is the Nobel Prize win relevant to your work? Day to day, it's a similar field. Um, big picture, it probably without it, we wouldn't be where we are doing it. Um, so you've got, in the 60s, you've got John Bell, I think 60s, 60s-ish. You've got uh, a really pioneering physicist who's, taking some of these ideas around quantum mechanics and codifying them in information theory. And that's essentially what we're doing, right? We're quantum computers. So we're saying we've got this whole idea of information theory, which is worked out really nicely for classical computers. It's binary and we know how we can add binary or add bits and do binary operations. And 
combine all of this and put it inside a computer, which is going to, you know, allow us to talk over the internet. Um, there's an analogous theory, a, like a, a sister theory, I guess you could call it, of quantum information theory, where you're saying, okay, um, the bits, which are your physical, like, bottom level of your compute, now behave according to quantum mechanics. And so bits can, rather than having a well-defined state, they have a quantum state, which is saying I can be in a superposition of one and zero instead of one or zero in a classical state. And they, so they codified certain experiments according to this quantum information theory. And that was, and then when they, so that's what was happened in the Bell inequalities. They were basically saying that, you know, we can think about sending entangled photons and we can measure them simultaneously a long distance away. And the correlations between the measurements we do will exceed a certain threshold. And we know that if we exceed this threshold, there must be some quantum entanglement in action because there's no way that you could have these classical, these correlations if a photon was either in one or in zero. It has to be in the superposition of one and zero at the same time. And so these were um, incredible experiments that first sort of used this quantum information theory, really demonstrated that quantum information approaches were were valid, um, were represented by physical reality. Um, they're, they're incredible. Um, but day to day, it probably doesn't have, you know, huge ramifications on what I'm doing in my life. But, and so how does it feel when you're sort of, you know, you're a quantum engineer and the Nobel Prize is given to quantum physics? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's wicked. It's really cool. Um, it is my field. So my interest has been peaked for, you know, the last decade. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's incredible to see it happening in the field. Um, I think there's more Nobel Prizes to be won in quantum computing and quantum information, to be sure. One application of this quantum entanglement is quantum computers, but there's also quantum teleportation. So quantum teleportation is about teleporting a quantum state. So I use a resource of entangled uh, systems. I've got a system and I can then perform a measurement on one system, uh, transmit the result of that information to someone else, a different place. Um, they can then perform some control operations on their other part of this entangled system and recreate the quantum state that we initially had. Um, that's probably wrong in details. I've not looked at this in a decade, but it, it's about um, being able to physically send quantum states over a long distance without necessarily transmitting the physical objects which encoded those quantum states. Maybe that's a good way of thinking about it. So I could, you know, if I have a photon that's got a polarization or something, like there's a couple of photons, they've got a quantum state, I could physically give you those photons and that would transmit that quantum state because matter had moved. Instead of doing that, I can encode some quantum state, I can do some measurements, I can send you information and allow you to prepare the same quantum state without physically sending you the things that originally had that quantum state in them. So that the state is being teleported. Okay. So it's slightly less exciting than what my head does as someone who used to watch Quantum Leap instead of doing my homework and uh, also like Star Trek a lot. Me? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not going to... 
engage at thinking about how we're going to build a teleporter out of it. But yeah, it, it's not going to let you send things faster than light, even information, because um, you need to transmit classical information. It would probably be very hard to work out how you make a matter transporter from it. Um, probably not possible. People are very clever. Maybe someone can work it out. Returning to Max now, I asked him about this distance between where we are now in quantum computing and where these technologies might take us in the future. Um, does it, you know, being a long way from something, does it make that something less exciting? <laughs> that's, that's number one, right? Okay. Uh, secondly, you don't necessarily need to have everything on your phone. And that's why um, I think direct comparison to digital doesn't hold uh, exactly, because we, you try to say that it's going to work uh, in the same way as digital works, and it won't. Uh, you know, you could have as well said, like, how am I going to use my mobile phone if all the ink, I mean, I need a pen to write with ink. How that thing is going to sit in my pocket? I mean, my pocket is going to be dirty with ink. It's going to spill. But actually, it turns out you don't need to because you have a screen with a keyboard on it, um, instead of ink and, and, and pen. Uh, that's that, that comparison. Um, so I, I don't think it holds valid uh, in that front. Max's company is also looking to space applications. Well, there's a number of, of them. So firstly, um, space is going to be one of the first enabling applications to build global communication networks with quantum, um, primarily because of the... Um, Certain aspects with losses associated in, say, fiber comms um, and, and the speed at which you can deploy global networks. Um, secondly, quantum uh, sensors, uh, quantum uh, gravitational sensors, are going to be uh, an essential element for high-precision positioning systems and navigation. So that's exclusively or needed for space and any anything that flies, basically. Um, you're going to see how it supplements and then uh, extended, say, standard GPS capability, uh, which you won't require, in fact, the actual signal to be transferred. You'll just know where you are anyway um, because of the high precision, the like, pseudo-inertial sensor, if you want. Um, so, and there's also going to be potentially a distributed computing capability in space as well. So you can have an onboard uh, simple information processing. So I, I know this is a silly question, but when? Soon is <laughs> the short answer. Um, I guess it depends on the time horizon. I think space is probably, if you're talking specifically about space, um, you know, you got to give it a couple of years uh, primarily because if you want to put it in space, it needs to go through quite rigorous uh, testing uh, and, you know, qualification. Um, so we're probably you know, two, three, four years away from uh, depending on what application you're talking about. Um, so applications in our everyday life, such as optimization problems that can be run on computing, that's something that's already happening and we've just seen that it's being scaled. Quantum safety, quantum communication, uh, it is happening already. Uh, moreover, the first standards and um, requirements uh, to be quantum safe are coming in force around 2024. 
So we are a year and a half away from that point. So that, that's, that's that's sooner than than it feels. Oh, it's sooner than I thought you meant when you said soon. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to give you a number when a million qubit computer is going to come live, uh, but it doesn't have to. No. Okay. So what's what's next off your production line then? So we'll expand the portfolio primarily to help uh, people and academics who are doing research and quantum science. So you're going to see uh, entanglement sources from us. Uh, you're going to see additional um, uh, chips that help you manipulate the state of the photons. And that creates like a very silent toolkit for people to advance, significantly advance their research in quantum information or quantum anything, uh, even imaging. So our, our, our first... Uh, Focus is to uh, to bring back uh, to the research community to the ecosystem um, that high efficiency uh, that you can achieve with uh, with the sources. And if you think uh, about like what do you need when you're trying to do something in any domain, like a measurement, a data transmission, you need to have a source uh, or generator of that data or something. Then you go to transfer it, manipulate it, and then you get to measure it. So what we do is supply that first component, the first component in the, in that uh, food chain of uh, of doing things. And up until now, uh, there were nothing really efficient uh, on the market to, to do this. So uh, it, it's uh, it's a simple thing. Sounds quite uh, you know complicated uh, if you give it a full name. Um, but it's basically a, a generator of true quantum light um, that, that unlocks uh, uh, unlimited possibilities, in fact. These real-world applications of quantum mechanics are born out of these concepts like spooky action at a distance. Here's Oscar Kennedy again. Um, I hate the term spooky action at a distance. I might even have used it as well, um, but I hate it. I think it's like, this real disservice to quantum physics where we talk about like things being spooky. I think it's a really good way to make, like if you introduce a new topic by telling everyone, yeah, it's impossible to understand um, your chances of getting people like thinking like, Oh yeah, I understand that. That makes sense. is quite low. Um, so it's, that's a personal quote. I, it, it is, it's a challenging thing to understand. Um, I think sometimes it, you can state it as just, facts um so you know like a when we look down to basic physics we find that things are quantum mechanical and what quantum mechanics says is that systems have discrete states and you can think of that as one or zero but typically things are not just one or zero it's one zero two zero one two three four five you know there's many states or ways that a, a state a physical system can be and they are discrete, so it's not a continuous thing. Like, you know, if you've got a piece of elastic, you can stretch that and you can continuously go from one length to a much longer length, and it can be every length in between that. It would be like the elastic band could only be length one, and then it will stretch to another length, then it'll stretch to another length. Like, maybe you think of a chain, like you're adding discrete links to the chain. So that so that's one part of quantum mechanics is saying that systems are discrete. Um, another weird part is saying that discrete systems can be the same it can be in multiple states at the same time that's also counterintuitive to what we see in our everyday life um you know like 
my hair will be sticking up or flat to my head. I, I say that because I can see myself on screen. <laughs> but, you know, like that that's also not the way that we experience everyday life. But, you know, fine quantum mechanics. It, it's not a theory of like the macroscopic every day. It's a theory of the very small, like, you know, when I think of air, I don't think of the fact that it's made up of molecules and atoms. Um, when I experience that on a macroscopic level, that, that's not how it interacts with me. But we, we don't think of the fact that it's made up of atoms as super scary. It's just the fact that when you zoom in really far, things are not exactly the same as they are on the macroscopic level. So I think that that's, it, it's different that things are quantized and that they can be in many states at once. Um, and then you have entanglement, which is another bit of tricky physics um but once you've accepted that you know a system is in a quantum state which is a discrete state and it can be in multiple discrete states then we say that okay we know that two quantum systems can be entangled and that their states are correlated in some way um so it, it's tricky it's tricky to understand i think quite often you have to work through the maths um but I think that it's one of those things like that. That is just how the universe is. Um, and it happens to not really align with our everyday macroscopic experience of the universe. Both Oscar and Max were keen to express just how exciting it is to be involved in this area of physics. OQC, of course, are hiring in all sorts of roles that transcend quantum information because we're building a world-class company and we need people of all roles. So if anyone wants to join the quantum revolution, we're always looking. Um, I think the thing I'd like to mention is, uh, is firstly invite people to join the, uh, the quantum technology community and enroll into courses. So if you're considering what are you going to do with physics, I'd say go into quantum, learn a little bit about quantum mechanics, learn quantum computing, learn those concepts. Uh, it is the future of the uh, you know, workplace, basically. And um, that's the that's that's the very forward looking uh, thing to do. Uh, and of course, we are always happy, you know, to help people, you know, drive the research, drive more knowledge. So we're happy to uh, do some custom, you know, you know, do joint grants. Let's let's do joint research. We're we're happy to help, and we absolutely love to see uh, new results coming out in the community. And our whole, say, product, services, everything that we do is designed to make that happen. And we're about driving the efficiency and, and the speed of that. And how do people get in touch with you? Um, just reach out on LinkedIn, um, go on our website, say hello, um, anywhere. We'll post links to Max and Oscar's work on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com. You can discover much more about some of the themes discussed today within the quantum section of that website, physicsworld.com forward slash C forward slash quantum. At that link, you can sign up to our quantum bi-monthly newsletter. As a podcast, we'll be back next month and it's December. So it's time to dust off those Christmas lists as we look back at some of the best physics books released this year. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.